Today we begin with our two-part documentary on the Seychelles Truth, Reconciliation and National Unity Commission. Beneath the surface of this paradise archipelago lies a hidden and tragic history of murder, forced disappearances and torture. I chat with renowned international legal practitioner and chair of the Seychelles TRC, Gabrielle McIntyre. Against all odds and expectations, often comic if not so tragic, the Commission completed its work only a few months ago, after fulfilling their mandate to look into the gross human rights violations that occurred during the coup of 1977 under the one-party state that persisted until 1993. We discussed the many lessons learnt that might be helpful if a British TRC was to be established over our colonial past. How not to do it, perhaps. But due to Gabrielle's utter determination, she did believe that the Seychelles Truth Commission managed to achieve a shared version of the past that might allow the country to move forward together with this as their new foundation. The value of such was not lost on us as we looked at ways for Britain to unite beyond the culture wars over our colonial past. In Seychelles, there's the veneer of a lot of things, right? There's the veneer of political commitment. There's the veneer of the rule of law. There's a very good veneer. So I think this was really the veneer of a truth commission that should never have worked and that was financially strangled from the outset to prevent it from working. But that just made me and the national commissioners more determined. Mm. So I just thought, you know, you're not going to give me any money. I'm going to fight. I, you know, I always say I prostituted my reputation. <laughs> you know, I called for people come and help me for nothing. It'll be great. <laughs> you know, you'll love it. You know? From the outset, when the commission started, we were basically investigating abuses that had been committed under the administration that still held power, had held power for 42 years. So when I first arrived and realised more broadly the context, I could tell almost what government <laughs> wants a truth commission to be exposing their past abuses as they still hold power. No, no one, right? Well, yes, I can refer yeah. that to Britain as well. You know? Exactly. What kind of human rights violations are we talking about that the perpetrators are, were accused of? Oh, well, torture, unlawful killing, enforced disappearances. They are the, you know, the main ones um, that they were involved in. Could you explain, so this is 1977, I think, is it, the coup? And people are still living together, perpetrator and victims, in a relatively small community. Yeah. The, the communities are quite tight, I imagine. Mm -hmm. It's a very small archipelago. And now things are being brought up again. Everyone lived together, but nobody talked about it. So it was like buried, really buried deep. Seychelles was still under this cloak of fear. Everyone was afraid and they expected the commissioners to be afraid. And they were fearful of particular people who became our perpetrators. They were fearful of them and what they could do. The only reason the commission was established was because for the first time since the coup in 1977, they lost power in the legislative assembly. They had a minority. And so the opposition that had always been the opposition that had the majority in the legislative assembly really pushed this agenda to establish this commission. Before the commission, there were rumours about what had happened to certain people that had disappeared or who'd been found murdered, but nobody really knew what happened. And we did bring out, we, we got full confessions from some perpetrators into, you know, crimes that they were involved in. And I think it was within about six months or so um, of starting the commission, we received phone calls from local people saying, look, you know, this person has made threats that he's going to come in, he's going to kill all the commissioners, and then he's going to kill himself. Because I was sending in perpetrator notifications or suspect notifications, sorry, suspect notifications, 
he rang the commission and made threats to the receptionist saying, you know, I'm serious, you know, he didn't want this to happen. And so I wrote a letter to the president explaining that, you know, this had been brought to the attention of the commission. And I put it in terms of, you know, the commission is concerned about the well-being of this person. (laughs) And also concerned about, you know, the well-being of of itself, because we were never punitive. We didn't want to get into these, you know, relationships with people. And the president just passed the letter on to the army because this person was still in the armed forces and armed. And this was one of the concerns of the National Commissioners. And, you know, the army wrote back, all officers of the army abide by the rule of law helpful right and when people made you know sort of threats to the commission during hearings you know I would always jump on that is that a threat you know I mean a lot of this happened in closed hearings but I would be going is that a threat are you making a threat you know I would challenge them on that and I think when other people came and they told their stories and you know then they were afraid and you know they were going to be harassed you know, we asked the police, you know, help us, give us protection. They refused to do it. So then I said, okay, we're going to do it ourselves. So I established with my 16 staff, <laughs> including using the security guy, a witness protection unit. <laughs> How can you do that with 16 people on top of all the work? That- got my driver, my driver, the security guard and the receptionist who was also the victim support officer established this witness protection unit because the police couldn't be relied upon and they were disregarding i was giving orders sending orders to the the police asking them to take certain actions in relation to to people that felt a threat and had reasonable grounds to feel that they were threatened and the police including giving them a contact person and the police were just ignoring them. The, the person would come back to the commission two weeks later and say, you know, no one's contacted me. I've, you know, I've heard nothing. But that, 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 that's actually terrifying, isn't it? If there's no yeah. witness protection. I mean, when I was working doing conflict resolution in a live conflict outside Johannesburg, as we were mediating, sometimes the press, would they'd actually ring up because they wouldn't go to the township because they thought it was too dangerous. So they knew nothing about the context. And they'd write something that was a kind of rumour. And the next day I'd go in and I'd see somebody killed as a result of that rumour. And so I kind of, when I hear you saying about these witnesses mm-hmm. who, who are being very brave in coming mm-hmm. forward and then having mm-hmm. no protection, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find that terrifying. Yeah. Well, what we did was we, we said, you ring any time, right, this number, you know, essentially my driver and then when people rang (laughs) your home numbers (laughs) when people rang when people rang right we would spring into action so they would go you know and also so first of all what we would do is you know the witness that had finished testifying that was afraid we would go to their house with them look at their security give them advice on security give them a telephone number that they could ring anytime and when they rang the number and sometimes they were on you know they were in a dispute with someone they would ring and then this little team would turn up and sort the thing out right and sometimes they would bring one of the people (laughs) involved in the dispute back to the commission and then me and the vice chair would talk to this person yeah, I mean, it was nuts. It was nuts. It was nuts, you know, but we made it work. But we also did things like the receptionist was like the secret weapon of the whole operation. She was, <laughs> she was just a lovely Seychellois woman that had so much empathy, absolutely no qualifications whatsoever. But when we were interviewing people, we were looking for people that were forgiving because we were, you know, trying to have a non-punitive, you know, perspective on everything. And when we interviewed her, she, you know, she she worked in a um, palliative care home. She spoke about how she would hide behind the curtains and cry when the people passed because she was so unhappy, you know, and she, you know, which was unprofessional. So she had to hide behind the curtains. But you know, we 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 saw a quality in her that we thought is really useful to us. So we hired her and she would do things like Christmas time. 
she'd ring the person that had been sent the most suspect notifications and go, hello, you know, I'm calling on the behalf of the DRNEC to wish you a happy Christmas. You know, and they'd be like, what? <laughs> what? It's a TRNUC? Oh, yes. And Madam wants you to have a lovely rest. Me, they always call me Madam, wants you to have a lovely rest. And she looks forward to speaking to you in the new year when you will tell the truth. Because you have to come and tell the truth. She would do this, you know, and she was really, she made very good relationships. Even though she was really assigned to look after the victims, she, she developed relationships with the perpetrators and she would always her call them my victims and my perpetrators you know and she, yeah she was amazing a man came to the office I was in a meeting a man came to the office when I was in the meeting and the secretary said there's a man here to see you and I said look you know I don't think I can see him you know we have to go back into hearing I only have limited time I've got this meeting and then she came back in and said you know he says it's a matter of life and death and I went, oh, okay, well, I guess I better see him then. So the man comes in, sits down, very nice man, tells me how his mother caught two buses to come to his office to tell him, if I remember correctly, it's me, I'm going to be killed. I don't think the others were going to be killed, that I was going to be killed by this person who he named. And then I spoke to him for a bit, and then I said to the vice chair who was there, well, I guess I have to go to the police. I got up with my bag, walked out to the corridor and the receptionist came down to me and said there's someone here to see you and they only want to see you no one else <laughs> and this person and I said okay I'll see him right and everyone's like uh, I said no I'll see him so he came in just me and him sat down started to talk meanwhile the vice chair every three minutes was opening up the door looking in closing it, looking out, opening it, looking in. And when he did it about the third time, he looked at me and I said, well, he's waiting to see if you've killed me yet. <laughs> so apparently you're going to kill me, right? And I think that really disarmed him, right? And then I, you know, I, I did explain to him, I said, look, we're not punitive. We're not, we're just here to give closure to victims. And, and over, you know, over from that moment on, and then going forward over the next two years, I really developed a relationship with him and the other perpetrators, you know, which I needed, number one, because I needed information, and number two, because I didn't want them to kill me. <laughs> I've looked at different models of truth commissions. This one seemed mm -hmm. to be, yet again, somewhat different on the line yeah. between an international yeah. court and a truth commission. And I wondered where on the line it it was because I noticed that prisoner um, that perpetrators yeah. could be imprisoned yeah. if they didn't come and testify. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that complainants actually came mm -hmm. with their complaints, so it felt more legal. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure it's the best model because really it was a complaint-driven process. We weren't looking at the pattern of what happened, or you know, and in the context of trying to be a truth and reconciliation commission, it, it led us to just being all about complaints, nothing about context. The context is what might help reconciliation. If people understand why someone acted the way they did at a different time. So we decided that we would open up more and we actively sought uh, people from from the other side of the political divide who didn't have complaints we sought them to come forward explain to us the context why did this coup happen why did you participate you know tell us you know what were the good things that you saw in it so that we could try and balance it out and make it more of a reconciliation there were so many rumours that had gone around so there were all these narratives about what had happened and that was really a challenge for us actually because these narratives had been given the status of truth. So when we were actually finding something different from the perpetrator's mouth, it was very hard for the community to accept that, given they lived all these years with this understanding. I've got to ask yeah. a cheeky question. Yeah. In, in this post-truth era yeah. of conspiracy theories, yeah. when we use this term, the truth, yeah. it's quite loaded. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with that? So, I mean, you know, what the truth really, I mean, the truth is relative in a way, right? Because we are subjective. 
So the way that we perceive anything is through our own lens of experience. So finding the objective truth, I think, is a fallacy. What you can find is a more persuasive explanation of what happened and why it happened and try and facilitate understanding. But I don't think you can actually find the truth. I mean, we found, we had people coming before us, giving us a litany of their life story. All these things happened to them, they said. When we investigated, we found, you know, but it wasn't a human rights violation. And explaining that to some people was difficult. Yeah, so it's sort of, you know, it's your perceptions, I think, that really come out. Right. I mean, how do you remain impartial, independent? Well, I didn't have a dog in the fight, right? So, I mean, that's, you know, why I was able to maintain independent and impartial, but also because I developed relationships with all, you know, professional relationships in the context of the TIRNUC, outside of it, zero relationships, except for with my commissioners. Because everyone was so politically aligned, I couldn't be socialising with this person or that person because everyone knew which colour they were. So I kept to myself. So I wasn't influenced by anything outside other than what I was receiving, the evidence I was receiving in the commission. So it was very lonely, lonely, you know, four years. It sounds yes. like it. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Serious yeah. Like, lockdown. Like, yeah. <laughs> because of the lockdown, even more lonely because <laughs> no one could visit, you know. So it was easy for me. And really, I wanted us to understand why these human rights violations occurred, you know, and the people that that committed them, why they why they committed them. And, you know, we could be more empathetic and sympathetic because we were not dealing with the masterminds. They'd all passed away. We're dealing with the, you know, the, the young foot soldier who joined the SPDF at 16 years of age because it was paying the most salary and the girls liked everyone in uniform and you know it gave them economic stability they'd never had and you know they were committed to this ideal which was about you know it was a socialist ideal or more of a communist ideal that you know everybody is equal and everybody will have the same and you know when you're someone who's had nothing and you've seen you know the power that comes with money you know you want a bit of that so, you know, it was really trying to understand this context and why these people could kill people, kill their fellow Seychellois. And, you know, it was because, you know, they'd sworn allegiance to the revolution, they'd sworn to uphold the president, and there were people that were trying to destabilise the government after the coup. There were, you know, a couple of attempts, other coup attempts. So they believed that what they were doing, which they were commanded to do, was what they should be doing as soldiers. Sure, I'm hearing some echoes of Cambodia there. And I, I sort of remember how, because I made a film a long time ago about how the country were, was de um, dealing with its past. And it sort of, what shocked me was the international court, their time frame meant that America's secret bombing of Cambodia that mm -hmm. helped create mm -hmm. Pol Pot, mm -hmm. arguably, was not brought into the picture. It doesn't really give the context. Mm. I'm wondering in the Seychelles, 1977 was just after they had been mm -hmm. got rid of in their the colonial. British, and yeah, the was British, that the British, yeah, the British at that yeah. point? Yeah. Do you think this was a who who? Where do you think the responsibility lies for the coup? I think with the with the um, I mean with the guy that launched it, you know, Albert Rene. So I mean, he could never win the electorate. So, but he, the electorate was first past the post. So he would say, more people are voting for me, but because, you know, they're concentrated in various districts, I'm not getting as many seats. And I would win if we didn't have this unjust electoral system. And and and, and who set up first past the post? Who imposed the that? Brits, the Brits. The Brits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Funny that. It is funny how these systems carry on when we're looking at decolonisation, yeah. So we've been talking actually about one of the other points that you said was the role of the Commission, which was to promote understanding of the context. And we have talked a bit about, but I'm still fascinated by 
the risk factor in opening wounds versus reconciliation? In those cases where the perpetrators came forward and petitioned for amnesty, we held in most of those cases public amnesty hearings. So we made those perpetrators come forward and face the families and basically have the families say whatever they wanted to them. And these were people that had been really feared in the country. And so, you know, and to have them ask these families for forgiveness, explain what they did, why they did it, so that, you know, the family can understand that this wasn't a free will decision or they didn't think they had free will. So I would try to say, so, you know, clarify, this wasn't your idea you're a soldier, you have to follow, you know, follow the orders. And then we had a bishop on the bench. And I'd always say to the bishop, you know, it's, it's for you. This is for you. And then the bishop would talk more about the power of forgiveness and ask them, can you forgive? Can you forgive? And some families said, absolutely no way. I can't. Others said, I can't right now, but I might, you know, I'll try to forgive you. And some some in, in lesser serious cases said, look, you know, I forgive you. And this is, you know, a, a case of drug planting where a guy had been in jail for, you know, eight years. This police officer having planted drugs on him. And then another case was a killing that had taken place where the family um, decided to forgive the perpetrator but the killing had taken place in the 80s whereas the more recent killings I think it was more difficult for them but in one of those hearings one of the um the victims said to the perpetrator I want you to organize a mass for my son right and there was four perpetrators there and the most senior one said I'll do it and he he was the most terrifying person in the entire Seychelles he said I will do it he did that. He organised a mass and she invited all other um, victims who had been put through this amnesty process to also attend this mass if they wanted to. And I went to the mass and it was honestly one of the most amazing experiences, this mass, with these three perpetrators, you know, having to, first of all, they had to go and confess because the priest wouldn't have them. Yeah, yeah, they had publicly or in a confession in a confession box first, or you know, I don't know if they had a box, you know, with this particular church, but they had to go and confess to the priest before he would bless them because he was going to bless them because they were seeking the forgiveness not just of the complainants but of their community. And it was the most, you know, I thought amazing thing. They had a choir, they had singing, my driver sang. And the receptionist, I hope. (laughs) The receptionist was there. She was there. She spoke to the media afterwards. You know, we said only you to speak to the media. And then after this, um, the next day, those three perpetrators, myself, the bishop, the receptionist, (laughs) the driver, (laughs) we went and the mother went to the grave of her son and they because she wanted them, she wanted them to ask forgiveness from her son. Oh, oh, they all came with flowers, and they all asked for forgiveness for the son. And we were there for three quarters of an hour. An hour, she played music. You know, we were all there. You know, she was talking. They were talking, talking to you know the dead son in the ground. As a result, of that then they said she didn't have a headstone on on there, so they said that they will get the headstone for the for the grave of this child more recently it was the anniversary of his death and without anyone prompting them they went to his grave and put flowers there the perpetrators perpetrators did and then my driver (laughs) and the receptionist (laughs) found out about it (laughs) so they 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 you know told told the mother so the mother at the at the graveside, she said, I can hear my son, I can feel my son, he forgives you, he wants you to walk freely, I know you can't walk freely. Because, you know, when people first heard what these people had done and they'd admitted it, they wanted to kill her. Yeah. I'm hearing an inner journey to the mother yeah. Yeah. from wanting to kill yeah. them yeah. to forgiving them. Yeah. Did you see a similar journey 
from the perpetrator, do you think they made a transformation? Definitely. I thought they were definitely, definitely transformed. Some of them were had less emotional capacity than others because they'd been so hardened. But they, they felt bad. You know, they felt bad. That was clear to me, clear to me. Um, and, and some were just devastated. You know, once they had taken response, realised that they were responsible, this was the first thing, was realising that actually you're responsible because the way they had been conditioned and believed and followed without question things, right? So to realise that you're responsible, I think that realisation and then taking that responsibility. And their families didn't know. And at this mass... You know, their families didn't know and their families found out because it's all on TV and their children. Trying to relate this again to Britain, I'm just thinking some people would say we've been, yeah. I've been educated on the, the greatness of empire. But the untold story is, is sort of the damage that came along with it. And it's odd because as a parent, I sit there and think, well, I try and teach my child that actions have consequences. And it's important to take responsibility. Why do you think Britain is so scared of it when you relate it to that story? I mean, you know, everybody knows the history, right? So I don't think they're afraid of the history, but I think they think it's the past. It's not present. It's not relevant because it's the past and it will cost them money, right? I think primarily, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, or maybe a focus on it that maybe... They think, you know, for new generations, you know, it will have reputational damage to their standing in the international community. But I, Yeah, because I'm not sure. I think the history mm. is only just coming out. People don't realise the history. Mm. I think now there is mm. a sort of mm. a new generation mm. through the internet who are learning mm. about the history. Mm. And they're kind of quite looking at their their ancestors and going, my God. Mm. I'm just wondering from what you experienced in the Seychelles, that's such a powerful story. Mm of transformation that I mean it's incredible that somebody would like you said that was feared and in so much mm. power gave up that power mm. and privilege in a way of mm. his position yeah what do you think he gained I mean, from it you know there was always the threat of referral for prosecution but to be you know if you didn't come I mean I, I think we had enough on him that he was cornered you know, number, you know, I think we had enough on him that he was cornered. And so, and I think also, you know, he worked very closely with the perpetrated support officer, who was my driver. He <laughs> 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 had 16 people, I had mm. to multitask them. He worked very closely with him and also an international volunteer that I had. He worked closely with him as well. And, you know, they were... I think they, they explained to him and, and had him understand that, you know, we weren't trying to harm him at all. What we were trying to do was help the families and that he could contribute to that, you know, and that would be a good thing that he did. Now that he understands that, you know, the things he were doing were not, were not good, you know. So it was that he didn't, I don't think he understood. None of them really understood to begin with. They were all powerful when we arrived, you know. They were still all powerful when the commission started. Um, you know, they, so, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was a lot of, I think, gaining trust, you know, gaining trust. I mean, the, and, and not being afraid of them, I think, really helped. So there was another occasion where Mr. Green and I got a random phone call to meet at a hotel, these two guys that wanted to talk to us. And, you know, as soon as their names were said, it was like, should we really be going and seeing, you know? I said, come on, it's a public place. It's a hotel. What are they going to do? Let's go, right? We went, you know, and they basically confessed all of this stuff to us. And, you know, for me, it was like very non-judgmental. Have to be very, you know, gain their trust. So I was asking questions. The vice chair really didn't say anything, you know, at all. And then um, afterwards, I thought, oh, it was pretty tough what they told us, you know, to hear the description, you know, of killing people. And, you know, it was pretty tough. And I, you know, sort of looked at him, he looked a bit pale, and I thought I should have been a little bit more, you know, to him. But when I saw him, you know, the next day, I asked him if he was okay. He said he was fine. But 
I could see the toll it took on my 16 staff in these amnesty hearings. I mean, I had to give them a few days off afterwards because hearing the, the families want to know all the details. But yeah. hearing the descriptions and things. And, and then, then it was their history, wasn't it? I mean, I was living with somebody who covered the Truth Commission for South Africa over the whole two, three-year period. And um, she really did actually break down at the hearing in Cape Town that was related to her history. I suppose it, it, it's hard for it not mm. to become personal. Mm. The perpetrators, do you think they gained anything else except for they no yeah. longer fear prosecution? Do you think when yeah. you watch that transformation? Yeah, I think they gained a certain freedom, you know, because in a sense, you know, they weren't living um, a transparent life, I, I suppose, you know, and, and they were also fearful of those above them and what they could do to them. So I think, you know, their their relationship with the TRNUC gave them a level of protection that they wouldn't have had if, if, if we didn't embrace them in a way. One of them was actually a bodyguard for the president at the time. The president moved him out and he then was sent back to the army headquarters and treated in a very, you know, disdainful way. He's a person they've used for years to do things, right? But they tried to distance themselves. They also did that um, with the most notorious guy. They they basically convinced him he should be retired. We'll announce your retirement. He right. didn't want to retire. And so I was able to use that in a way to say, look, they're not your allies anymore. They are well willing to hang you out to dry, right? We are not going to do that right? We are here to support you, to help you through this process. You can do positive things for your community, blah, 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 you know, rat on them for me. <laughs> I mean, you know. Because I'm just, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's such a powerful story, the story of them laying flowers on the ground. Um, yeah. And, and the church service. Yeah, the and church service was amazing. If, if like in South Africa, what I noticed was if that is then, so, this was in the days before social media, but with social media and with the media covering it, that healing event, do you mm. think it goes out wider than the place that it happens? It goes out to communities, mm. society, it affects the whole country, do you think? Mm. Is it covered in the media? I mean, you know, it, it, it was covered in the media. The problem we had in terms of it, you know, and I'm sure... You know, it did have very positive impacts, but it also made people angry, right? Made people angry because the TRNUC signing with the perpetrators and what about our, our victims, you know, and they should all be strung up and quartered and go to jail and, you know, that's what should happen. So, you know, there was a lot of abuse directed at the commission on social media, but I was always saying we are not a punitive body. We are trying to understand things. We're trying to get people to understand. We're trying to bring you together so you can move forward. And um, the other problem we had, of course, is that, you know, we, we were making recommendations for reparations for victims, but we had no, I'd asked from the very first report to the government, please signal, right? We can make, I, I've got a problem here. It seems imbalanced. We shall grant amnesty provided certain conditions are satisfied and we may make recommendations for reparations which you may or may not implement so from the very first report you know we see this imbalance we don't see amnesty being palatable in the community without you signaling here's my trust fund for reparations you know for victims and ignore you know i think we wrote seven reports throughout the period and that request was ignored each time ignored 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 nothing happened when we gave the final report, there were some, you know, murmurs from certain politicians there saying, well, I think I know where the money can come from. But, you know, the political will is really not there. You know, and if they, you know, if they don't follow through and finish this off in a proper manner, then they're not going to end it. You know, there's not going to be closure because victims expect there to be some acknowledgement by government, you know, a formal apology to them, um, and also that they will be compensated in some way. 
there will be reparations. That's interesting paid. because on a personal level, a community level, it sounds like the families of the victims found a way to forgive, but maybe the wider society didn't. No, no. I mean, yeah, and that that was, I think, some message that we we were giving that it was up to the victims. It, you know, these are not people to be judged, you know, by the broader community. We had no outreach. Outreach and communications was me appearing on <laughs> starting a hearing with, I'm going to make an announcement, <laughs> right? Before we start today, I'm going to make an announcement. And I would talk about stop abusing people on social media, please, or we'll have all our sessions, closed session, because you can't do that to people. Or, you know, this is happening. Or does anyone want to volunteer and do some, you know, that was the outreach <laughs> communications, right? That was it. I can't believe it. Can I ask you, because I have this problem, I bang on about truth commissions and people say, what are they? And Mm. I haven't got it in a nutshell yet. How how did you describe talking of outreach, what you Mm. were? Because I suppose what I hear you say is that unless you really get that across, everybody has different expectations and it can lead to problems later if they expect something different creating a shared understanding of the past you know we were always you know we're trying to create a shared understanding of the past so there's an ability to move forward you know as one in a way not no longer divided by these different views of what happened and whether it was justified or not justified so i think you know that's broadly what we were trying to lay a foundation for a new beginning by exposing the past and having people understand that past accept it and then mm-hmm. well that's really interesting because that brings mm-hmm. up the whole the history mm-hmm. is written by the victors only do you think you managed to reconcile these different versions of history i mean you know we, we <laughs> i think we have a version <laughs> Right. That's what I because I mean our standard is balance of probabilities. You know, we can't say we're absolutely certain. You know, but I think we have a pretty aversion that is, you know, pretty close. I mean, but it's a lot because, you know, all of this truth is in, you know, three hundred and seventy one different decisions that were put into their individual context in terms of determining them, as well as the other volumes you know, of the report. So if anyone reads it and gets their head around it, you know, that's the other thing, right? <laughs> well, yes, but but to not get that shared shared history is, is yeah. the culture yeah, I know it's of terrible. Britain today. But, so. you know, I mean, you've got to manage expectations, you know, what you've got to manage expectations from the beginning then, right? And who's going to support it? And, you know, you've got to make sure that you have sufficient support that you can access you know, materials that you need and stuff like that. And, you know. Yeah, you yeah. learn that. Yeah. Yeah. Way, yeah. Well, some people say if it's not legitimised by government, it's actually kind of... Yeah, but, I mean, but there's more and more the People's Court for, you know, North Korea. There was the People's Court more recently judging Putin in The Hague, you know, taking witness evidence. It's about preserving that record too, right? And even if you don't get everything you want today, at least you're preserving, you know, because people die, memories are lost, you know, archives deteriorate if they're not properly kept. I mean, you know, so there is value, you know, but it's like the participants need to understand the limitations. If it's not sanctioned by government, if it's not going to mean that government's going to redress what it's done because there's no political will, you know, whether that's going to be a further, you know, lobbying effort that would need to be done. I'm interested by what kind of ideas of reparate, who who put the ideas for reparations forward and what kind, can you give a few? I mean, we've got a huge reparations policy. So we were meant to make individual reparations for each decision, each 371. Um, You know, I just couldn't, come to an individual recommendation for each case when I had no idea either about the economic capacity of of government. They weren't giving me any information or about their, you know, political will to pay anything. So we developed a reparations policy. And what we did, because it's all about being victim-led, we formed an association of victims and we held, we conducted surveys, we held public meetings where we discussed quantum. What do you expect? 
it went to, yeah, we want so this much, you know, a lot of money. You know, that beginning we want 20 million for this and 20 million for that. And then, you know, we they started out with all these high, high figures. And then it eventually came down to a scale of between, you know, for this violation, murder, um, up to 20 million shillings, which is maybe a million US dollars, I suppose. When I was in Cambodia, I was handed a tape sort of a bit surreptitiously and I was amazed. I suddenly saw this very glamorous figure on this very ancient tape and it was Jackie Kennedy uh-huh. handing out $100 bills to very poor looking people. And I was thinking, what on earth is this? I mean, she looked like she was on a photo oh shoot. Oh my God. Absolutely glamorous. And um, it, and then and then my fixer said, well, that's that's the mistake bombing of Net Leon uh-huh. when America it actually conceded they'd made a mistake, and we went back to the village and there was a very upset, angry relative who'd lost her son, and she showed us a picture, Pol Pot, of banned family and yeah. banned pictures of family, but she buried it and uh-huh. she literally dusted off the mud and showed us and said, have you come to give me justice? It really, mm. really struck me because she said that hundred dollars, mm. who was America to decide yeah. that my child was worth a hundred dollars. And I have seen this quite a lot in Britain. I've heard the beneficiaries, mm. let's say, discussing what they're willing mm. to give. The Traverne family has just gone to Grenada yeah. and it's great yeah. that they're doing yeah. that. 100,000, right? It's 100,000. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's decided by yeah. them. I yeah. mean, what's this? And, and actually, mm. I mean, it doesn't have mm. to be a financial yeah. amount, yeah. does it? Did they come up with other... Yeah, I mean, you know, memorials, memorials, things like that. But, I mean, you know, there's, a, there's memorials scholarships i think they didn't all the roads were changed after the after the coup and we had suggested well we could change road names you know to honor the victims but they didn't want that they were against that they said no we want to move on we don't want to be reminded you know we want to move on um but it was mainly memorials what we had hoped to do was you know establish an information center where they could access and you know we collected a lot of exhibits and things you know to have a permanent museum and display you know and access to hearings and records and things but you know so far the government you know who initially said oh yeah that sounds like a good idea you know they now say we have no money for anything right that's that's the attitude at the moment and really quite surprisingly because Seychelles is such a gossipy place I would have expected there to be explosions on the release of our report silence nothing right nothing which is i i i don't know you don't know what i don't know what to make of it at all no no it's very strange right even the independent newspaper who criticizes everyone nothing just yeah nothing. do you think the government's come down with the shutdown the minute you left then could well have some of the cases that we were dealing with were like killings, state-sanctioned killings in 2006, 2007. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, the government became less and less <laughs> happy, you know, with the work of the commission. And I mean, you know, they started to portray us as a tool of the opposition government to gain power. And in fact, in the elections in October 2020, they lost power for the first time in 43 years, executive power. And the opposition came in to executive power and everyone was saying it was because of the Truth Commission. I mean, we haven't finished translating the record and we told them this because we had one, no, we had four stenographers and no translator. And then eventually we got one translator. And, you know, we heard over 1,000 1,100 people, we heard their evidence. Most of it's in Creole because that's what the people wanted. Our working language is English. These case determinations, I primarily had to write them for my handwritten notes, 
relying on an interpretation given to me by the one translator we had most of the time, right? You can imagine, right? <laughs> no, I can't. Yeah, I mean, you know, nightmare. So <laughs> we told them this and they'd originally said, yes, yes, you know, we'll make facility for you to finish the re record. Now I've recently been told that they've said, no, you shut down, you finish, there's no money and we're going to change the act because the act says the TRNUC shall keep a complete written and audiovisual record of its proceedings. And that's why we were saying to them, listen, this record's never going to be finished under the Act. This has to be done. And now they're saying, oh, don't worry, we'll just change the Act. <laughs> you know, I've tried to reach out to some colleagues to see if anyone wants to come forward with a project proposal they can get funding for, you know, to finish this work, establish this information centre. But, yeah, they would like us to go away, you know, I think. I don't know. You know, maybe I'm wrong. It's really sad. I mean, one of the interviews I did was with somebody called Nano Joe, who, who did the memory house in the Gambia, which carried on the work, really. And it was a lot for people who disappeared. So families gave one eye, like she gave her dad's passport because he disappeared to show that he once lived yeah. and... And then they run workshops on it and things. I, I don't mean, know who the, funds is, that. Yeah. I mean, that's what we want. I mean, the, this is the thing. We couldn't get any funding or interest from the international community because of wow. the amnesty, because of the amnesty provision, right? Because the UN says you don't give amnesty for gross violations of human rights. The US are against the giving of amnesty. So is everyone. No one came near us. Internationally, I wrote to so many asking can you help us? I contacted the UN. Can you help us? Any help you can give us? Nothing. They get nothing, right? So, you know, we were very much a national commission, right? Totally funded nationally. But we wanted to, um, you know, have this information centre, have the record finished, and we wanted to do things like have the perpetrators give talks from there as part of their rehabilitation to the police those that, you know, planted drugs on people and talked to the police, those that murdered people as soldiers, you know, to talk to soldiers and talk to them about, you know, you've got to question orders, blah, blah, blah. We wanted to do this as part of their rehabilitation, but also as part of a broader reconciliatory effort, you know, in the community, bring these people into their community. Um, but no, they... That's such a shame yeah. because I think yeah. that's a real criticism that's been pointed at the international court. Yeah. yeah. That it's it it they cost a fortune. Yeah. They don't really necessarily have much effect on the ground. Like Rwanda, yeah. it was yeah. held in Tanzania. Yeah. Yeah. How much of the information was actually going back to Rwanda? Yeah. Who was it really benefiting? And mm -hmm. yet you've got this mm -hmm. wonderful sounding project yeah. with all these yeah. ideas of how it could actually impact on the ground and no yeah. support internationally. No, none, zero, zero support. I mean, you know, the vice chair is trying, you know, to get the support of the Americans now that, you know, our proceedings are finished and it's just, you know, archiving or, you know, I don't know whether he'll succeed, but I've asked colleagues in human rights clinics, you know, if they know anyone, um, I'm hoping someone will get in touch with me soon that might be interested in doing it. But and Britain being the former, yeah, I mean, they, power. you know, they were just disinterested in the commission. Can I ask you how many amnesties you gave? Yeah, I think on. I think seven. Seven. Yeah, seven. Yeah. What know, was the alternative if they were I mean, given then, amnesty? You know, we would recommend them for prosecution. So, I mean, I think I sent about over 500 perpetrator notifications and these ones that were given amnesty they were in multiple cases a lot of main offenders that got multiple perpetrator notifications did not petition for amnesty I mean some of them hold positions in government and some of them are ex-president of the country and you know, a lot of them just, you know, army, they're in their army, still in the army. And they just ignored it, even though you could. Yeah. I, I thought you could actually send them to prison yeah. for 10 that years. Was for, for that was up. if they didn't turn up to give evidence for contempt of the commission. Yeah. Oh, so they did come forward and they gave, yeah. they did give. Yeah. Well, they, well, they gave a story, 
right? Or, you know, it was, you know, we had one, you know, who was like, I don't remember. If I do remember, I don't remember. You know, but some of them, you know, even those that came forward, especially the older ones, when I don't remember, and if I do remember, I don't think I can remember, people were making little clips of them and, you know, circulating them on social media, making the little, you know, jokes about them, people doing that all the time, you know. So they did, you know, suffer as a result of coming before, you know, the commission. But a lot of them, they would say things like, if I hurt anyone, I'm sorry. But they wouldn't admit. Right, 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 right. A bit like King Charles, I think. Because I clearly don't remember any of it. I'm sorry, you know. You talk about closure. What is closure? Do you think it helped with closure? I think knowing the truth. You know, a lot of our complainants said to know, you know, what had happened really gave them closure. Not just knowing what happened, but also having someone listen to you. You know, we these people had been silent. They had not spoken out. You know, one lady who came, she had been silent for... 40 years too afraid to speak because she was told that if she spoke out that her son who'd been injured in this bombing this green bombs that had been left on the beach the one's son that had survived they would not help him with medical attention if she spoke about what had happened so she didn't speak and when she came and spoke I mean it was like for her it was such a, a burden lifted to be able to acknowledge what had happened and why she hadn't, you know, spoken. And she said if Albert René, who was the president who took power with the coup, if he'd been alive today, I still probably wouldn't have spoken. She was that afraid, you know. So I think it was also being heard and we let people speak. It wasn't like, look, we're only interested in this, right? It was, we let people speak. We listened to them. And we were criticised for that as well. But, I mean, this was their opportunity. TV. Was it the public Yeah, it was hearing? public, televised on TV, you know. So people would be riveted, you know. It was like they called it a, a telenova, you know. And when we weren't sitting, they'd be ringing, when are you going to be sitting? When are you going to be sitting? I mean, people were like, you know, really interested. And, it, you know, they were all on social media, I never knew this. And, you know, I mean, some of the people that came, it was just so sad, you know, it was really, so I think being heard, being respected and listened to, I think that was an important part of the closure as well. And then, you know, the commission finding out as much as it could what had actually happened and giving them their story, you know, their written story individually. You know, I think for a lot of them, that gave them closure. You know, the final step would be some recognition, you know, by the government. Thank you to all our contributors. If you are enjoying this series, please follow and share. And importantly, if you support the call for a British Truth and Reconciliation Commission on colonialism, Please sign the petition. The link is below the series intro. Thank you.